on today's episode. You say you have a podcast. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. Stay awake so you can hear this pod. Strap in. <laughs> Don't bring logic with you on this journey. We're taking a trip down memory lane with Armageddon. The smash hit. I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith. Hopefully we all survive this trip. I don't know. Or maybe maybe ha- someone has to be left behind and become a hero. Someone will die. Let's see who dies at the end of this. Let's launch the pod. Welcome to the song will go on the podcast that's inspired by the song that is inspired by the motion pictures. Today, we'll only survive the podcast. We'll only go on if we detonate this bomb before that one hour and 20 minute mark. We are tackling the song. Yes, I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith from the 1998 movie Armageddon. Why us? Because we just don't trust anyone else to do it. Podcasting, it's an art, it's a science. Apparently, just like oil drilling. <laughs> and joining me on our crew today, her demand, her only demand to agree to do this spot was to never pay again for a single bag of chips or french fries. It's our co-host, Sofia Matano. What's up, Sophie? I'm going to hold you to that. This is going to be an expensive episode, I guess. <laughs> Lifetime supply. Only if we complete the mission. Mm-hmm. And today's guest... The host of the YouTube channel, Popcorn and Vinyl. And I'm afraid he has brought a severe case of podcast dementia. It's Mark Mahalik. What's up, Mark? Hello. Uh, pleasure to be here. Absolutely, man. We're so excited to have you on the pod. We're so excited for this movie. But what do you say, guys? The U.S. government just asked us to pod about this song. Anybody want to say no? Selfie. As long as I don't have to <laughs> Selfie, uh, pay why taxes didn't you again. answer that? You took long enough. <laughs> well, actually, it wasn't the U.S. government. It was Mark who picked this song. Mark, why? Why, when we reached out to you, this was the song that you picked? You mentioned the idea of the podcast, and you were kind of going over the general structure and idea. For some reason, this was one of the first songs that came to mind. And then you sent me kind of a wish list of songs that you would want to tackle. And, and again, this one just popped out at me. I think this would make a, a great choice to take a deep dive into and, uh, you know, drill to 800 feet with this baby. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, this is a classic. I didn't think we were going to cover this song already so early in the pop, but this was the mo- first one that we we're like, Oh boy, here we go. Yeah, it's a heavy hitter. I don't want to miss a thing Armageddon. Before we get to that, Mark, Popcorn Vinyl, we met because we collaborated on some YouTube videos from my YouTube channel, Gigawatts. And I think we started the channel at the same time. So talk to me, like, what made you start the channel? Like, how's how's it going? I don't know, maybe similar to yourself. We have that interest in in soundtracks and and vinyl and, and even just kind of the the general kind of theme of mine it's it's popcorn so i i don't tend to go into hardcore you know film necessarily you know these aren't going to be the film school type of movies and, and films that i discuss i go for the the popcorn side the turn your brain off 
and watch uh, Bruce Willis and a, a crew of roughneck oil drillers, uh, you know, dr- drill on an asteroid. I, I, I'm I'm a simple guy, a, a guy of simple pleasures, and uh, this movie is right up my alley, and it fits very much with um, the types of stuff that I like to watch and uh, and talk about it. And often these films have tremendous soundtracks. You know, again, they may not be incredibly complex; they're just uh, fun to uh, to watch and listen to. Awful movies can have great soundtracks, and we'll cover those. Whoa! I throw out the word "awful" you know, this early. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I say you all know the drill by now. <laughs> the drill. I know. <laughs> we one. can talk about the song because we first have to talk about yes, the movie. Its creator. Alive. It's alive. It's alive. We would not have a song. Without a movie. So, Sophie, just like we practice in our zero gravity room, initiate the movie setup. (laughs) Armageddon is a 1998 sci-fi disaster film produced and directed by Michael Bay, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, and written by Jonathan Hensley and J.J. Abrams. It stars basically everyone you'd expect in 1998. Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton, Liv Tyler, Ben Affleck, Steve Buscemi, to name a few. The film opens with a meteor shower that destroys a space shuttle and parts of Manhattan. This leads NASA to discover an asteroid the size of Texas is hurtling toward Earth and will hit in 18 it's, days. It's always New York or somewhere recognizable. And while it's a cliche, like it kind of really makes sense. Because I was thinking about this, like what if like some random place got destroyed and you didn't know who it oh, was? Oh, people would be like, You'd big be like, deal. What, what happened? Yeah. Like Boy- that? In Boise? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that ranch got meteor. Like, I don't know what's happening. It has to be somewhere you recognize. So sorry, New York or Paris or... The Taj Mahal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and it's always the size of Texas. Yes, the, yes. Right? I mean, that's... There's nothing bigger than the size of Texas. <laughs> uh, well, this this asteroid the size of Texas is going to destroy the planet and life as we know it. The natural solution to this, of course, is to send a group of oil drillers into space to drill a hole into the asteroid and detonate a nuclear bomb from inside of it. I mean, how else would you do it? Like, there's no other there's way. There's no other way. Mylar sails. <laughs> NASA recruits Harry, played by Bruce Willis, uh, the owner of an oil drilling company, He assembles a ragtag team of his employees to train to become astronauts and save the world. Among them is Harry's insolent young employee, AJ, played by Ben Affleck, who is also dating Harry's daughter, Grace, played by Liv Tyler. Harry doesn't believe AJ is good enough for his daughter until the dangerous mission proves otherwise. The film released on July 1st, 1998, grossing $553.7 million against a $140 million budget. And earned, yeah, and uh, it earned the honor of the highest-grossing film released in 1998. Uh, the reason for that caveat, released in, is that Titanic hit the box office on December 17th, 97. So it technically made more money than Armageddon in 98. But I'm just trying to give Armageddon its time to shine. <laughs> Can't, I, I wonder if like Michael Bay ran into James Cameron. And he's like, James, did you see my movie? Huh, disaster movie made for 100. And he's like. Wait for it. Yeah, honestly. I'm going to do the Sasser movie. It's going to be way better. I'm going to do twice. The film received mostly mixed reviews, including criticisms about the pacing, screenplay, and editing. Really? Pacing? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Though the visual effects and soundtrack were praised. BFX are... Nah, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. at the time. (laughs) Not by Roger Ebert, though. He named this film the worst of 1998 on the Siskel and Ebert program. Any guesses what Gene Siskel picked as the worst film that year? Armageddon? No. He, uh, he gave Armageddon a thumbs up. 
was Godzilla that year? Oh, he it was Patch Adams. What? Oh. Yeah, that was his worst. That's a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but wait, it gets worse. Uh, the movie is included on a list of Roger Ebert's most hated films of all time. <laughs> Way to go, Roger. <laughs> he he is dead to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll talk later. I want to hear some of your guesses for what some of the other movies on that list are. Well, it, I know that he absolutely despises hot chick no, not hot. Like, Deuce Bigelow 2, the, the, the no, sequel. You, no, you're correct. It's two well, Rob... Both, two, both, yeah, no, yeah. both are on there. It's <laughs> yes. two Rob Schneider movies. <laughs> yes. uh, it's also two David Spade movies, Tommy Boy and Joe Dirt. Yo, yes. <laughs> Wait, Tom, uh, Tommy Boy's not belong there. I'm sorry. It's on Chris, there. Oh, come on. Um, And then something that incensed me, Spice World. So this Ooh. is just proof that uh, Roger Ebert doesn't always get it right. I mean, yeah, yeah. but he's okay. just a wannabe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, one. Good one. Okay, back back to what we're here to discuss. So the Academy found some merit in this film, though. They nominated it for four Academy Awards, uh, one for Best Song, yeah. uh, which we'll discuss soon, uh, and the rest for sound and visual effects. Yeah. Shocker. I know. The film was a champion of home release media. Uh, it actually became the UK's best-selling DVD release until The Matrix dethroned it the same uh, later the same year. Surprising to some, the film earned a Criterion Collection release. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I yeah. knew about that. Mark yeah. knows about that. We'll talk more about yeah. that. Um, despite the critiques of the stylistic cinematography and fast-paced cuts, this might have been Bay honing his signature style since this was only his third movie as a director. And uh, he's known for all these things now, and he continues to dominate the box office, so uh, I bet he's not too bothered by these critiques anymore. So that was enlightening. A lot of stuff there to unpack. Yeah, Be I had a very hard time sitting through those those statements <laughs> because after every sentence, I could go on for five minutes. Okay, now's your chance. <laughs> Clearly, Mark, it sounds like this is a movie you really love or have a strong connection. Let's hear it. Well, I think my initial experience with it was was a lot like other people's and that was through the music video mm. um you know in 90s <laughs> well that's the thing you know throughout the the 90s and early 2000s when you're a teenager you go home and you listen to you know you, in the states you guys have mtv but we have our own version in canada called much music or we did and it was, it was pretty much the same uh, as mtv but you know, you watch music videos and um, that one would just play incessantly. Uh, you would hear it, I don't know how many times a day, it would be on the radio constantly. Again, we'll probably go into this later, but mm -hmm. this really, I think, was one of the biggest examples of using the music video as marketing for the film. And uh, that really, I think, got a lot of people psyched and it was such a great tie-in to the film. It connected the music to, you know, a great artist to a great sort of love story that that we're gonna get so it, i think it just was kind of the the perfect storm of everything to really get people excited for this movie as for the first time i actually saw the movie it was on a bus on my eighth grade uh, kind of class overnight trip wow. and we watched it uh, on the bus on a tiny little 13 inch uh, crt tv and i remember my because i went to a catholic school i remember my teacher like running up to the front to turn it off when the stripper scene came on or just fast forward through that. So, uh, you know, my uh, our, our special virgin eyes couldn't see that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, eventually I did get the VHS as part of a two pack with Crimson Tide. For some reason, those came packaged huh. together. They, they came packaged as a, as a duo. So from there on, I would watch it constantly and it would just kind of be on TV every once in a while. And if it was on, I would watch it. 
So I'm so curious. Did you see this movie before the podcast? That you knew about it? I mean, of course I knew. I know about the song. It. Yeah, I know. I, of course, everyone knows. Yeah, Armageddon. I could have sworn I had seen this movie before <laughs> the podcast, and about five minutes in, I was like, I have, I have not seen this movie before. I would remember this. Um, How could I forget? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had absolutely heard the song. I think. I just got super into it in high school. So it sort of surprised me that I had actually never seen the movie until just recently. And I can't <laughs> wait to hear what, what that experience was. Yeah, that was quite um, an experience. So here's the thing. There's a couple of movie going experience that I vividly remember hmm. just because how captivated the audience was. Scream, first Scream. Oh, wow. Is that mm. the Blur Witch Project also, Titanic. Independence Day and Armageddon. Okay. I cannot separate this movie from that experience. It was such a wild roller coaster ride of a movie. I I've always really liked it because of that. There's just no going back. It was such a unique experience. I just remember just feeling everyone so tense and oh my God, it, the movie just worked on how every level that's supposed to work in that room everyone was captivated <laughs> i still watch it every once in a while every once in a while i'm like man i'm just in a i'm just in the mood to see like the stupidest shit ever and i'm just gonna <laughs> put armageddon and i still enjoy it. like i still like the pacing of it the construction the, the execution of it to me i can overlook all the stories and, and plot holes and mm -hmm. I don't know, bad acting, whatever you want to call it, uh, it works for me. It, it, it works for me on, on those levels. But is this the Mike, your Michael Bay pick? Is this number one? I don't me? know. I actually really like pain and gain. I thought I hmm. think that's like an underrated. Also, Bad Boys is really good. Yeah, that's his uh, first. You know, Will Smith. And, mm -hmm. and so I don't I, I don't know. But what about you, Mark? I mean, so if I could chime in my relationship with Michael Bay. Ah, so yes. I I was the biggest vocal fan of Michael Bay for the longest time and basically longer than I should have. It took me <laughs> a long time to realize like actually his new stuff's pretty bad mm -hmm. but it was based on the foundation of you know The Rock, Armageddon, uh, The Island, some of those yeah, earlier the films that like so The Rock is basically in my top three favorite movies so wow. he, he earned so much credibility uh, of enjoyment for me with those early films and, and The Rock. You know when people say like, oh, I've seen that movie a hundred times. I sincerely have seen The Rock over a hundred times. I believe, I, I, I believe I you. Used to, I believe I used you. To, I would watch it every single day after school. I would be able to recite it from beginning to end with all the Connery accents. Maybe not <laughs> that good. But because of how good though, I, or how much I liked those movies... That kind, I, I, I sort of brushed past some terrible, terrible films and decisions in the future that I just defended for far too long. But, but I finally got on the same page after the 19th Transformer movie. I like, okay, <laughs> maybe these aren't uh, that great. Well, you know, they can't take the older ones away from you. Yes. Yeah. That's well, right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, I am sitting across from you and I can tell for your body language that maybe this film did not work the same way for you as it maybe did for Mark and, and me to a certain extent too. I think nostalgia is a very powerful thing. Oh yeah. That's why, that's why I started <laughs> with that story. I was like, I cannot separate it from this experience that I had. Yeah. And I also think that this movie is terrible. I'm going to agree with Roger Ebert on this one. Watching it was truly an exhausting experience. Uh, it, 
it was sort of like an assault because it was a constant barrage of screaming. Just once they get into space, it's constant well, screaming. No, 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 no. I'll do you one better. <laughs> okay. Before space, because in space, you would say like, yeah, man, it's in space. Like, I don't know. It's very tense. Here, I'm going to play you. I'm going to play you a scene. Okay. Go get my goddamn phone book. Get the book. Get the book. Get the book. He just goes crazy screaming, get the book. And I'm like, oh, like, I mean. And that's like the first <laughs> two minutes of the movie. Yeah, I was like, damn, dude. Because I, he found an asteroid the size of Texas. Of no, course. I know. I know. Like, man, even that clip is just like, this is. Sorry, I'm 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 stealing your your train of thought, Sophie. You you you, you, fi you finish, and then I'll, I'll I'll chime in. And well, I ex half expected you to accuse me of not liking sci-fi and having that be part of the reason why I didn't care for this movie. Because Paolo and I have talked about this before. He says he claims that I'm not a sci-fi fan, and that that might tint my judgment. I do like sci-fi, but I don't like space exploration movies in general. They stress me out. And I like movies that are more character based. And this movie sort of just they gave us all the exposition right in the beginning. And there was very little development. Yeah, after that you point. really you really don't care for space. Like when I say like, oh, we should be like, it'd be cool to go to Mars. You're like, no, I don't I don't care. It's just stay on Earth. No, you're really other people should go. I don't want to go. <laughs> all the oil drillers should go. <laughs> they need them up there. Well, um, and, and, you know, I mean, I. We could do an entire podcast about the, the, the logic of well, this yeah, movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm and not, you know, it's, I think. No, I'm fine with it. Like, sure. I'm along for the ride. If all of a sudden you want there to be gravity in space, that's fine. Go have <laughs> gravity. I don't they have care. thrusters. Yeah. They've explained everything. They every criticism. Everything. Every criticism about the movie is explained thoroughly with some well-placed dialogue. <laughs> There's so actually there's one from a guy at NASA who says, literally, I got some magic happening to explain <laughs> how they got back in contact with them in space. And I'm like, good. I'm glad that's your explanation instead of trying to, like, give me some science reason. Like, he's just like, it, it, right. it works now. You guys are not alone about the logic. I mean, we're all but one of the stars also agrees. Oh, um, Oh, here we go. <laughs> you weren't ready for this. But the Ben Affleck audio commentary. The movie yeah. has a Ben Affleck audio commentary. Yeah. And I grabbed some really nice parts to play. <laughs> I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers. And he told me to shut, shut the fuck up. So that, that was the end of that talk. He's like, you know, Ben, just shut up, okay? You know, this is a real plan, all right? I was like, you mean it's a real plan at NASA to train oil drillers? He was like, just shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That... Probably the only time I'll agree with Ben Affleck. <laughs> this makes me like Ben Affleck Probably so much more. Probably the only time I'll say shut the fuck up, Ben Affleck, yeah. because <laughs> I, I disagree with him intensely. Well, Mark, I'm sorry for you, but Ben Affleck has more to say. Here we go. <laughs> like eight whole months, as if that's not enough time to learn how to drill a hole. <laughs> But in a week, we're going to learn how to be astronauts. Oh, one whole week? Now you know how to fly into space? I need my guys. Why do you need them? They're the best. Everyone's the best. Why are they the best? I don't know. They just are. <laughs> they are the best, though. They are. Let's give Ben Affleck the final word. All right. I mean, this is a little bit of a logic stretch, let's face it. They don't know jack about drilling. How hard can it be? Aim the drill at the ground and turn it on. 
You think it's just drilling a hole? There's a lot you gotta know about. And when you're gonna break, snap off an edge in a tranny on a corner of a hot pipe, and you're gonna get a gas pocket. Like, yeah, well, what about when the booster rockets don't fire, and your EVA suit, and your zero gravity, you know. Didn't you see it? Didn't you see Apollo 13, boy? And also Bruce Willis screaming in the background about something <laughs> in the, the movie. That, it's an audio commentary. I know, I know, I know. But I think that might be like Hall of Fame for audio commentaries that, that makes the list. Yeah, I feel like Ben Affleck's like, the, the check already cashed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can say whatever I want now. <laughs> he still did Pearl Harbor. Can, <laughs> can, can you say it so I can copy? <laughs> Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. He still did Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Fuck, I'm not going to even go over there. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I might just leave that in. Okay. Um, but so, but I don't mean to to harp on this movie too no, much. No, so I'm going to defend this yeah. movie. I'll say this. With such a stupid movie like this, I feel like <laughs> it's really hard to say stupid things with a straight face and not have people laugh at it. And that is something that the movie, like, achieves. Like, it, like I don't, I buy into it. Like, I, I ignore it. Like, uh, uh, there's another version of, of this movie where I, like, will be laughing the whole time or, like, not into it. And that's not my experience. I'm, like, in there. I'm stress i'm enjoying the ride like it's fun i'm i'm afraid i'm not uh emotionally ready to to continue i'm still on ben affleck in my <laughs> so, so you know how when there's like a boxer in the corner just like waiting for the bell to ring so so, <laughs> so here let's, i'm gonna let's, go let's into talk this. about it let's talk it through let's, let's, yeah, yeah yeah come in the ring join, join yeah. the fight. yeah so ben affleck he uh he is wrong and <laughs> he you know it's explained in the movie perfectly well uh with beautiful exposition dialogue and and let's let's throw a bone to the, to this scenario. So they only need real astronauts to fly the spaceship to get them there and back. They don't the astronauts themselves don't need to be doing any of the drilling. And I think Ben Affleck is doing a great disservice to the uh, oil drillers of the world who, you know, it is a specialty as Bruce Willis says it's a science. It's an art. It's something that you need, he, you know, he's the world's greatest deep core driller. That's why they brought him in. They need his expertise. Uh, and, you know, they're going to encounter difficult situations. What happens when you land on, uh, you know, uh, 600 feet of iron ferrite? You need experienced drillers to know where to go, what to do. You know, what happens when you hit that gas pocket? Do you keep uh, pushing in on yeah. uh, the RPMs or do you push back? No, you just slip that nuke and just throw it down the hole and just well you you know you need the the hole dug first before you can do that so i, I think <laughs> you know it it's a perfectly oh i can't believe i'm saying this it is a perfectly logical <laughs> finish that scenario finish it stay with it commit with it i'm committed honestly i think it is completely reasonable to have them there they don't need to do any crazy astronaut stuff all they need to do is with their thruster suits that again scientifically make sense on a medium gravity asteroid they just need to go and perform their regular job they could easily get enough training in that time as long as they get the safety training of how to put on their suits that's all they need to do and then they drill and then they work the machinery that they know you know the rig that harry stamper designed in nasa you know the most brilliant minds in the world couldn't figure out obviously harry knows what he's doing better than those minds and he's needed to be able to react to situations quickly the mission going sort of as poorly as it did is really nasa's fault when you think about it like well, those, definitely. Yeah. 
because Captain they didn't America foresee blew the landing any by 26 yeah. miles. <laughs> <laughs> they also um, set off a bomb that they weren't that they were almost not able to defuse <laughs> on their own ship. Yeah, uh, the, they couldn't. They, the guy could the remember. Wire. Yeah. How do you not remember if it's blue or red? I, I know, know, right? That was like, oh my god. My it, question it, it, is, why is there not an off button like this? You built this bomb. <laughs> you should know how to turn it off. Look, I'll, I'll say this, and like to finish with the logic stuff is one of my favorite <laughs> movies is Jurassic Park, and I feel like there's movie logic and then there's real world logic, and movie logic just has to be enough. And I feel like I give it a pass. It's it's just it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Yeah. Was this a Top Gun equivalent? Yes. For NASA? Absolutely. Like, do you think people watch this movie and like wanted to be part of NASA? And I was like, oh my God. Like, so apparently Top Gun. I want to be as bad at my job as they <laughs> <Yes>. are. <laughs> apparently Top Gun once like people watched it. Mm-hmm. Skyrocketing recruitment. People. Up. Oh yeah. my God. You think people come out of this and be like. I want to be NASA or I want to be an oil driller. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe they want to be oil drillers instead. They're the true heroes of the movie. Well, as for NASA, you know, they made some choices in the film where where the real NASA looks pretty boring. It's, it's you know, office buildings and kind of plain looking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't look that all that special, but they in their set design, they went a little bit more elaborate. It looks more like, you know, um, a control room from a James Bond film or something like that. The lighting was super intense. Obviously, that's not how the real NASA works. And they just, they made NASA look cool. You saw astronauts walking in slow motion in a big line constantly, you know, slow motion takeoffs. To me, that looked incredible with a, a, a tremendous score by by Trevor Rabb. And we're not going to go down that rabbit hole, but mm-hmm. uh, I do think the the score worked really well for, for the film. And it just made everybody look super cool. The Music was doing a lot of heavy lifting with emotional moments because yes. this movie, you know, pushes their narrative of the romance and everything. But it's not like Titanic where we get to see them fall in love. And I believe, you know, this relationship right. like Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck's characters are already in love and they're like, we're getting married and like, that's it. You know, right. so uh, the romance or the the connection isn't quite as illustrated uh, as other romantic movies. And it. We'll talk about this later, but I find it interesting that this the song picked for this movie is power ballad, like a romantic right. power ballad yeah. when it's really mostly a father daughter relationship. This movie. Anything else? Anything else from the movie that we want to mention before we move on to the song? Because we have a lot to talk about the song. Well, I have a little oh. story for you guys. Oh. Yeah. Story time. Yeah, a little story time, a little behind the scenes. And it's going to start with a question. How much do you think Bruce Willis was paid to do this movie? I would say less than his normal rate because of a contractual obligation. Ah, you already know the story. Okay, so basically, (laughs) Bruce Willis, uh, his going rate at this time was $20 million. He was paid $3 million for this movie. Why? Well, in 97, Willis was going to co-star in a romantic comedy called Broadway Brawlers, <laughs> where he played a retired ice hockey player who would like probably fall in love with some lady. And uh, two weeks into pre-production, it all become it all comes to a halt. Someone read the script, be like, "Hey, <laughs> did anyone read this?" Yeah. Like <laughs> Broadway Brawlers. It makes me think it's going to be about like <laughs> singing and dancing. <laughs> uh, but okay, so allegedly, I'm saying allegedly, Bruce Willis, do not come for me. Allegedly, Bruce Willis was dissatisfied with 
basically you name it his co-producer because he was a producer on this movie uh the directors cinematography wardrobe cast and crew and like everybody gets fired Craft services everything yeah, was awful basically. yeah so uh everyone's fired and disney is out for 20 million like the budget or 28 million sorry the budget like has already been spent so long story short, the film can't be salvaged and Willis is facing a $17.5 million lawsuit from Walt Disney Pictures because uh, his actions, allegedly, allegedly Bruce Willis, uh, <laughs> uh, and behavior were largely the cause of the movie dissolving. So Willis needs some damage control. Uh, the president, the then president of William Morris Agency and producer of many of Willis's films uh, strikes a deal so with Disney for Willis. So he's going to do a three picture deal for Disney at a greatly reduced salary. So that's why he is only paid three million for this movie. That's um, why his his acting is so good. It's like an NBA player when they when they have a contract year, you know, you got to perform well to get that contract and then you coast. But yep. he was like, I got <laughs> I got to bring it. <laughs> so what were the other two movies of this three movie deal? The kid. Yes. One of them is the kid. Any other guesses? <laughs> Um, Mark, do you know the other? I I forget now. Yeah. I, okay, I, it was uh, it was Sixth Sense. Oh, that's right. That's yes. Right. Well, that worked out for him. Well, it worked out for everybody because <laughs> yeah. the three movies grossed one point three billion dollars world wow. worldwide. So uh, I'm betting Disney wasn't too upset about Broadway brawlers anymore. Again, props to Bruce Willis. He can do no wrong. Well, I mean, except that he tanked a movie. But he knew <laughs> what he was doing. He had a he had to guide them to success, and that's how he did it. <laughs> he was sacrificing yes. himself for Disney. Yes. Like, he sacrificed himself for Worldkind in the movie. Absolutely. Or Mankind, exactly. sorry. <laughs> he, Bruce Willis is the true hero. On and off screen. Yes. Anything else before we close out with the movie? Yes. Uh, so I, I want to end the, the, the movie portion. It, it is Whenever this is discussed, I kind of struggle between sincerely defending it for having brilliant filmmaking. I think there's a lot going on here that people gloss over because it's silly. It's a silly summer blockbuster with a lot of insane stuff. Um, but I think, I do think all the performances are really great. I think it has some incredible visuals, again, great score, and it's just a fun summer blockbuster. It's almost like this movie was cooked up in a lab and is sort of a perfect summer blockbuster. If you were to give a recipe for everything that you need and you were to follow that, you know, this, this is kind of what you get. And I think that was it's like the Mountain I, Dew of movies. This is the recipe, the Mountain Dew of movies. I think that's an apt uh, <laughs> comparison. But, and I think they tried to replicate that formula with Pearl Harbor and it mm -hmm. failed. But I, I think this just really worked out well. But while calling it a brilliant filmmaking, I also acknowledge it's sort of the McDonald's of movies. It's just we know it's not great, but it is. It just feels good to consume and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a mature movie. It's just fun. And, and uh, you know, it goes, it's, it'll sell some popcorn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm there with you. Uh, last question. How long do you think the world celebrated before they got back to work? That's a great question. I would have loved wow. to see the sequel. Yeah. Like, like what? Like a month, two weeks, they like probably, They probably a got year? like a long weekend. That's nothing. I so a, like, I like I, I, I literally, so I asked this because. I'm originally from Puerto Rico and there was this one weekend where a boxer, Tito Trinidad, and then Miss Universe, they both won. 
And literally, they just canceled school on Monday. They were like, what? yeah, they were like, there's no school on Monday. We'll celebrate. So that was for just like weaning a boxing belt and Miss Universe. So I can just think about what Armageddon celebrating, at least in Puerto Rico, would be be like, we're taking the whole year, 1999, off. We're not doing anything. We'll, we'll start back in 2000. Well, Rock I mean, out. then they probably were like, oh, man, the end of the world is coming. Like, uh, yeah, Y2K. Y2K now. <laughs> so now we have another Armageddon to worry about. Armageddon 2, Armageddon. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the screaming will continue with Steven Tyler and Aerosmith <laughs> and the song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Patreon. Every now and then we need a little support to help make the podcast go on. Patreon, support us. And in return, we'll give you all we got. And we need you now, tonight. <laughs> Seriously, though, head over to Patreon and support us. We have some really cool perks, exclusive content, and your support will help us grow so we can continue making the show. And then maybe we could afford some singing lessons. Or not sing at all, just talk about the people who sing. Check us out at The Song Will Go On on Patreon. Alright, people, listen up! Your boyfriend's back. Your podcast is back. We're back and we're ready to deep dive into today's song. We have to reach that 800 feet mark, like Mark said. Today it's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith from Armageddon. Sophie, this is it. No more drills. It's our only shot. Set up the song for us. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing is a song performed by American hard rock band Aerosmith, written by Diane Warren and produced by Matt Serletic. Aerosmith formed in 1970, led by vocalist Steven Tyler. Many of Aerosmith's hit songs came from the 70s, such as Sweet Emotion, Dream On, and Walk This Way. Drug addiction and internal conflict led two guitarists to leave the band, Brad Whitford and Joe Perry, the latter of whom was the co-songwriter for the group with Steven Tyler. The duo was given the nickname Toxic Twins because of their Damn. rampant drug use. Yeah. Uh, in this period of their departure, the band lost popularity, but Whitford and Perry ultimately returned to the group in 84 and the band became successful again. There was renewed interest in Aerosmith with the release of Run DMC's cover of Walk This Way. I prefer that one to the original, personally. Yes. The song and music video were played constantly, and this introduced Aerosmith's music to a new audience and younger generation. Uh, however, there... 1985 album Done With Mirrors was a commercial disappointment and the group's drug use was inhibiting their potential for success again. Uh, all the band members got clean. They went to rehab and they worked hard on their next album. Steven Tyler commented that this album, uh, 87's Permanent Vacation, was the first album they ever did sober and it was their best-selling album in over a decade with three of its singles, uh, Angel, Ragdoll, and Dude Looks Like a Lady. Uh, on 
honorable mention to dude looks like a lady as a needle drop in yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. Doubtfire. <laughs> Aerosmith continued to enjoy their success into the 90s with songs like Crying and Crazy, and they won two Grammys in 94 and 95. Oh, don't forget Love in an Elevator. Yeah, exactly. So this is basically where Aerosmith is up until Armageddon. Now, uh, here's a name that you're going to hear on the pod as we discuss more movie songs. She's going to come up a lot. <laughs> Diane yes. Warren. Yep. She is a titan of the music industry who has written nine number one songs and 32 top 10 songs on the Billboard Hot 100. Some of these include Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge. If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher. And Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion, which is from the movie Up Close and Personal. Speaking of movie songs, uh, in addition to being a hit writing machine, she also has so many movie songs on her resume, uh, to name a few more. Can't Fight the Moonlight by Leanne Rimes from Coyote Ugly. Yes. I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly from Space Jam. And There You'll Be by Faith Hill from Pearl Harbor, which we were just talking about. She also has a song in Legally Blonde, your fave. She does? Which one? I don't remember. She has a lot of songs. Okay. Well, I do <laughs> love that movie. I, I need to go back and check her. Her If you guys could see Sophie's so eyes, they were like, <laughs> she does? <laughs> she has a Grammy, Emmy, two Golden Globes, and has been nominated for an Academy Award 13 times. She did all right. She's what all right. the hell, Academy? <laughs> Give her a freaking statue 13 times? I think, I think they announced, uh, don't quote me on this, I think they announced a lifetime achievement of uh, the Academy's giving her the lifetime achievement. Well, I won't quote you because I'm going to quote myself because <laughs> it was announced on June 21st, uh, 2022, that they're going to give her an honorary Oscar in November at the Governor's Awards, um, which is kind of like them being like, oopsie, we goofed. You deserve an Oscar. Honorary Oscars are also... Apologies, Oscars. Like yeah. Ennio Morricone didn't get an Oscar never for his film score work. Gave him a lifetime achievement honorary. Like, we're sorry. I Yeah, like, I guess it's a nice gesture, but, like, give her a real one. Anyway. So, uh, okay, so let's get to this song. I don't want to miss a thing. The power ballad was originally demoed as a soft keyboard-based melody, which Warren envisioned to be performed by someone along the lines of Celine Dion. She was inspired for the song when she saw a Barbara Walters interview with James Brolin and Barbara Streisand, in which Brolin commented that he missed Streisand while he was sleeping. Is this Jace, like, from Thanos? Is this Thanos? No, his dad. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? J James Sorry. Brolin. Yeah. <laughs> U2 was approached to perform the song. Uh, Thank the, God we didn't get that. Well, the only reason Aerosmith was contacted because uh, of Liv Tyler's casting, and she's Steven Tyler's daughter, as I'm sure everybody knows. On hearing the demo, Aerosmith's drummer, Joey Kramer, said, quote, I kind of knew it was a hit, but I didn't really like the song. I didn't think that song was us. And bassist Tom Hamilton wasn't too keen on the track either, labeling it as embarrassing. Yeah, um, I think also the drummer, I think there's a quote on him somewhere sort of saying, uh, there, you mentioned their song Angel, which is mm -hmm. straight up ballad. We shouldn't have done that. Really? Like, it was just too, too ballad. 
So I can imagine then hearing this being like, oh, shh. Yeah. Here we go again. <laughs> uh, but the their producer, Matt Serletic, uh, sort of understood what this song had to be to become an Aerosmith song. That being said, the band didn't really have a lot of time to devote to the track since they were on the road at the time. Uh, so they kind of put a rush on it. And within three days, they were in the studio recording. The song was originally supposed to be a radio-only single from the soundtrack, but due to popular demand, it was released commercially in August 1998. It debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, giving Aerosmith their first number one single in the U.S. ever. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's their most streamed song on Spotify. So, really? Is yeah, there more? This is it. So Not Sweet Emotion? Nope. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> uh, well, how does Aerosmith feel about this? Kramer said, quote, It's okay. It's just another song. <laughs> so, <laughs> lukewarm sentiment here. Uh, it might be because Aerosmith wasn't too involved in the writing of the song, but it's undeniable that they put their own flair on it, and I think that's that is, what makes yeah. this song so iconic, even years later. Wow. Oh my God, so good. Man, that's a real, some, so many good info there. Yeah. We have a lot to unpack. Mark, let's go with you. You love the movie, and I think you also hinted to that. It seems like you also love the song, because you really discover it through the music video. Yeah, it, I do think it, it's a great song and kind of I've sort of rediscovered it after picking it for the sh for the show here and going back and researching. You know, for example, I had no idea that they didn't write this song. And, yeah. you know, learning about who Diane Warren is going down that rabbit hole. I was stunned to learn all that. I just always assumed uh, that they wrote it. And it's it's interesting learning about some of the tidbits related to kind of their involvement in the film, because, you know, you read stuff online and articles or YouTube videos, and you don't know about necessarily the accuracy because it's always somebody telling a story. But uh, one thing I read was that the film was originally temped with Aerosmith music, mm. which I'm not sure if that's true or not. That's an interesting kind of tidbit. Yeah. But it, it, it would maybe make some sense because Michael Bay directed uh, a video for them in the previous year, which is uh, Falling in Love is Hard on the Knees. Oh, so, yeah, that's you know, right. Already... He, uh, he was a music video director before a film that's, director. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so they had that connection there. Um, so, so I could see that kind of being the intro, not necessarily through, uh, through Liv Tyler. I'm, I'm sure that sort of helped mm -hmm. the sweet emotion needle drop on armageddon works really good oh, phenomenal you know. yeah and the other kind of tidbit that i read was that the sound like it was never really intended to have a, a soundtrack uh it was going to be more of a score and the, the soundtrack was sort of slapped together in the last few weeks of production because godzilla had a soundtrack and they wanted to compete with that mm -hmm. i can see that not to get too ahead of ourselves but yeah feels like a one hit wonder soundtrack that's all it does you know it does that's why they put it number one they know it's like they know what you're yeah. coming here for mm -hmm. uh but you know i i think the song is great and i like that it's used multiple times throughout the film it kind of really cements its relationship with that uh that film and and again i think I might be getting ahead of myself here but i think the song has kind of lived beyond the film now i think in that time period it really um had a strong connection, but now I think it's kind of its its own entity. I genuinely really like this song. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I like Aerosmith. I, I will say it. I feel like. What do you mean? Like I would say it. Like, I don't know. It's I a... feel, this is something that I wanted to bring up with you guys later, but like, is Aerosmith cool? I don't know. We'll talk about it later. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll absolutely it get there. But I love this song. 
I think it's a total banger. I will say I maybe played it a few too many times in preparation for this, and I don't really <laughs> want to hear it again for a little bit of time. <laughs> but uh, it's going to stay on the playlists. It's in rotation. It's a total banger of a song. I'm kind of in your same camp. Mm-hmm. I've loved this song since it was a huge hit growing up. This came out about when I was like in eighth grade, seventh grade. And that's when I started really buying CDs for my personal collection for the first time. Actually, I remember, shout out to my friend Melissa, who I remember had the Armageddon CD. And I would borrow it when I would go on school trips and I would play it on my <laughs> Blue Sony Walkman CD. Um, so shout out to her. But yeah, I, 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 I still have this song on my 90s playlist. I still listen to it every once in a while when it comes. I don't skip it. I, I, I like it. Like, I absolutely like it. Yeah. This song and everything to this song really captures the film well and, and also what really makes a good blockbuster movie songs. Like, yeah. this is a go-to if you talk yeah. about examples. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be wrong if you sort of lead with this. It is, you mentioned, like, U.S. number one hit. Not just U.S. number one hit, but it debuted number one in Ireland, Norway, Greece, Germany, Italy, and Australia. Oh, wow. I really kind of like took the task to try to sort of deep dive and like what's what's going on here that makes it such a such a good song beyond, oh, it's a catchy melody. And I want to start with the intro. Mm-hmm. Honestly, might be my favorite part. It's such a perfect storm of movie song magic. The chord progression Here, I want to play a bit. I mean, even that, that chord progression, it's going up. And Mm -hmm. is it just me? But it literally sounds like, I feel like I can add a countdown sequence on top of that. I feel like I'm going to play that again, but I feel like I can go like eight, seven, Mm -hmm. six, five. Because the chords are just like going, going up. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we also have in that intro a, a, a tiny detail. I think it just really works. But the snare drum, you hear those snares here. It's very military. Yes, yeah. yes. Which it also, but it also ties to the storytelling right, yeah. of, of the movie. Also, mm-hmm. right, right. It yep. also ties to Michael Bay. Michael, there's a lot of military Michael Bay's filmmaking, mm-hmm. but it also ties to the movie. And again, you just really, it feels like you're going, like you're preparing to launch this intro. Something that we say a lot on the podcast is how movie songs lead to musicians making creative choices that they otherwise really wouldn't make on an album. And with this song, there's even a rock mix in the album that doesn't have this intro, which is... I feel like clearly that's saying like, this is what we would have done if this is a a song that we would have released normally. So this is why I love Mm. movie songs. We just get these kind of decisions. Also, if you could, if you guys can indulge me a little bit more on this intro, because I'm not joking when I say it's my favorite (laughs) part of the, but the orchestral instruments in this, in this intro, it definitely feels uh, cinematic also adds like that cinematic tone to it. For sure. But also in an over the top way, like, which could say it's also a great fit for this film, for Michael Bay's filmmaking. I, I, I don't know. It, it it feels over the top. I just, this intro just feels very connected to the elements of this movie. And I'm going to, I'm going to even go another detail I love is the string melody in, in the intro. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm stretching here, but it kind of communicates the plot to the movie too. Mm, here. Like, I'm listening. Okay. All right. Let's say we start with, with the chords. 
So that those are the chords. The strings are doing that. That's the the lunch part we get. Okay. And so we're going sort of this lifting motion, and then we get this melody, and back to lunge, which is kind of like the obstacles that they run. Like they they run into obstacles. Right. They go back. They keep going. Moving forward, momentum. Mm-hmm. More obstacles. Still going forward, and then they arrive. Changes the chord, and we arrive to like our new setting. I just love that intro. I really love that intro, and I just wanted to <laughs> just have fun exploring. But man, movie songs. This is this is why uh, I love I, this. I, yeah. I I agree. I agree with your analysis, and it definitely has that cinematic feel to it and i think it has a, a very timeless feel in comparison to some other movie songs which feel very much of their decade but i think this again getting ahead of myself but but very timeless because of its um just overall feel this whole song is up and release it has so many climatic and build-up moments first one and the pre-chorus and they're the the chord progression is just going straight up like like a ladder gives us that. And I feel like also that isn't that what happens in the movie a lot? Like mm-hmm. these obstacles that you just like overcome. It sounds like in movies that cliche where like something falls down a cliff and you lose sac- track of it. And then it quickly just comes back up and you're surprised. It's like like a plane. The plane is going down over the hill. Mm-hmm. It falls. You don't see it like, oh, it went down. Yeah. And then it comes back <laughs> up. That's what it sounds like. And they just like do this throughout the whole Throughout the whole song, mm-hmm. the, the the bridge also has a really good, this song has a really good bridge. I can even hear like a little, uh, like a shimmer, like a glass, like the or- orchestral instrument, that thing that I think it's oh, like yeah. the, those crystals that you play. Like they even mm. throw in like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> like it feels like they're achieving the goal. They're like detonating the bomb or something like it's so big yeah and i think the the constant build and release really just reflects with the film really well uh it follows that pattern of constantly building and just when you think it 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 sort of has hit its peak it still goes up again uh and i think the the song does that tremendously there's an outro section where they have sort of like a fake a fake build-up once you think you're out of the clear, it still has like here. Just the right amount of touch there to sort of keep things fresh. That chorus, which the chorus is an absolute banger part of, yep. the, of the song, but I want to play like the chords progression of the chorus because here. That's nice. And that's like, it starts on the, on the tone, the root chord goes all the way to five, which is the most tension, and then comes back down. And it, it just keeps doing that, the song. It's so good. Yeah. And it's, it, well, it's interesting hearing these piano versions that you put together yeah. because I think I can almost envision the demo that Diane Warren put out, you know, that was yeah. piano driven for a Celine Dion type. And then hearing it against what Aerosmith was able to turn it into. I mean, all the bones are the same. It's just what you put on top of them. Just good chords and good melody and just awesome songwriting. Diane Warren. I know. She's the goat. 
I just want to zoom out a little bit and talk about Aerosmith on the soundtrack as a whole. So Mm. they have a few more songs on this album, which you've hinted at. One of them is a remix of Sweet Emotion, which is pretty cool. And then there's another one called What Kind of Love Are You On? And that didn't make it on their Nine Lives album. uh, So it came out here instead. So I guess they were just trying to find a home for it. Which, again, this album isn't that great. And it's like, oh, this song that wasn't good enough for your album, which it wasn't that big of a success, Nine Lives. And then this song came and they were able to extend the tour. Like they were now crazy in demand and they just kept extending. Well, that's why I find it a little bit surprising that they're kind of lukewarm on this song because I think it really revived something culturally for them. You don't want to be like your number one hit, like a ballad, you know, you want it to be like sweet emotion. But it's a badass ballad and it's definitely not going to be the cover of Come Together by the Beatles that they did for this. I think they did make it badass because I can almost hear the Celine Dion version, which would have been also great in a different way, but it would have been really different. I think it would have been very, it, it would not have made it out of the movie, the straight pop version of this song. It would have been good, good enough for the movie. I don't think that it would have competed with like My Heart Will Go On, which Celine Dion had just done right before this movie. And I think Mark was touching on this earlier that Aerosmith kind of hook this song to a level that makes it live beyond the film. Yeah, I think they brought a bit of sort of credibility to the song or at least allow it to be more of a friendly song to the mainstream. You know, with Mm -hmm. Celine Dion, it was so overplayed with Titanic. That song lives with Titanic. And I don't think that could be separated really from that movie. And and now really when you hear that song, it's almost in in parody form or in some way to make fun of the film uh, or the song. Whereas this is still, I think, a respected song, I think, because as artists, they were able to bring kind of a a gruffer kind, you know, a roughneck uh, sense to it that just gives it a little bit more, you know, friendliness to to a wider audience rather than it being just a, a love ballad. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the version that is in the movie versus the version Mm. that's on the soundtrack. The movie version is actually a lot more similar to that Celine Dion version or maybe like what the demo would have been that they must have heard. It's very stripped down and uh, it's actually called Animal Crackers on the album. Uh, Here's a little clip of it. I actually like something that version does better than the original one. Really? I, I don't like I, I don't I don't like the in the verse, the original one. Mm-hmm. The piano is played like in our arpeggio, like the chords are like just the three notes arpeggio. I don't like that arpeggio piano sound and I like hmm. it more play like this, like like block chords those like meaty chords i like i like, I just like the piano version of this also the celine dion version if, if this is what it sounds still a really really good song you know it is really because i think that this sounds so lame really uh this this I think, version I think of it's the song because you heard it with ben affleck <laughs> moving an animal cracker on Liv tyler's yeah on her 
exposed stomach and bra. Well, this this is a perfect segue into mm-hmm. my next point. So uh, kind of the choice of artist and some of the themes in the film and the, and the kind of the relationship, obviously, between Liv and Steve Tyler. There's a you know, there's that subtext of the father daughter love story within the film, you know, between Bruce Willis and, and, and Liv Tyler, that like we kind of get that extra emotional impact because her real father is singing this song. And just in terms of sort of my relationship with this song, how it's changed over time, my initial kind of interpretation of this song was very much the, the love story between the you know, Ben Affleck and, and Liv Tyler, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the the couple, let's say. Even since having children, listening to this again, it's sort of changed the meaning of it for me where I get more of that father-daughter relationship huh. versus what I experienced before. And I wonder if people read this song differently depending on some of their, their life experience, when they heard it for the first time. Uh, I'm curious how that sort of impacted their reading of it. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but you two comments, a lot of father and, and daughter comments. Well, yeah, because the movie, the, the father daughter relationship is a lot stronger than the romance. Right. So right. this um, it, it makes sense that that's the lasting impression, definitely from the movie. The song, uh, on the other hand, it's played during this romantic moment. So that kind of complicates things a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yep. but if we take it away from the scene where it's played in the movie, and then again, when it's played uh, over the credits uh, during the the wedding scene, it's a song about loving someone so much. And it doesn't necessarily say romantic love. Right. So I, it does make sense that this song can change meanings for people. Like art does. You yeah, know, you, exactly. make, you, you make what you want out of art and yeah. whatever gives you meaning. There's a detail of this song that's my favorite, favorite detail, even maybe more than that intro. Mm-hmm. It's a small detail, but when I think of this music technique, this song like comes to mind. It's backup vocals. To me, this is a absolute CD play. Outside of that, it doesn't have the same magic. And it's stuff like this. Here, here listen to the backup and focus on when we arrive to the second part of the chorus. That dream. The dream. They just like <laughs> reverse throughout the whole. Oh my God, it's so good. It, I, I honestly, when I said that this song comes on my playlist, I don't skip it because I want to hear that part. That part gives me goosebumps. It's not something that maybe I overtly heard the the first few times, but it adds so much texture to the song and that's what makes it feel so full. Let's check in with Academy Awards. Yeah. Aerosmith, they performed this song in the 1999 Academy Awards. And I single out in this moment to to just sort of put a spotlight and really just the great mixing and production that they did with this song in the studio. Here is them performing live, same moment. Okay. Is that live, that back? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, that's a keyboard. I mean, he's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have obviously the same amount of like reverb and just sure. all those details, it doesn't give me goosebumps. It's that studio mix that is just ooh, so good. But I, ah, I just love those kind of details. I, I, I love that part of the song. That's my favorite part of the song. And you're still not going to give Diane Warren an Oscar. We cannot move on to answerable questions without talking about Diane Warren, like the absolute flex that she has of a career. And rather than just listing all the songs, 
I'm just gonna play you three second hooks for all those songs, and you'll be like, what, what, what? Yes, here we go. Diane Warren. One thing is abundantly clear. I need a Diane Warren playlist immediately because <laughs> every single even, one of those. I didn't even, I didn't even put the ch- the share song that you yeah, mentioned. On the, I know, like, that's yeah. insane. There's so many more. I am I am just shocked and <laughs> embarrassed by how little I knew of of what she contributed because that is insane. Like that list alone. Uh huh. That's that's the soundtrack of the last twenty years in in movies. Yeah, absolutely. That's wild. And just pop culture in general. Look, I think yeah. I think we should do this for the this is this should be a running bit on the podcast. The Mount Rushmore of movie songwriter and performers. Mm-hmm. And this will be like our singing reality TV show, the four. We're gonna start <laughs> four. And then throughout the podcast, we're gonna see if they stay on or not. But oh, I have okay. Diane Warren. Yes. Brian Adams. Yes. Kenny Loggins. Yes. And then any recommendations for fourth? I fourth I have. Hmm. Alan Menken, Dolly Parton, or Jojo Moroder? Oh, it could be anyone. So I'm going to put in Alan Menken. I would put in Alan Menken So I'm going to put those four. Yes. Because this is the Mount Rushmore. I'm going to put Diane four times. Yeah. (laughs) This is our four-month Rushmore. Throughout season one, we're going to see if they get dethroned, any one of them, if someone gets dethroned. Well, if anyone has listened to our... Everything I do, I do it for you episode. You might know that I would say we can ditch Brian Adams from that list. His spot is up for grabs. Well, maybe, maybe. (laughs) I am alone in that, I realize. But if if his face is next to Diane Warren's, he can go. To finish finish the Diane Warren, we use a Diane Warren song in our trailer without not even knowing it. I knew it. What did you do? It's Sophie's favorite movie song, <laughs> that crazy weird movie, weird song from A Star Is Born, the Lady Gaga song from the movie. Look, I have she said, had a part with it. Yeah. I have said it wow. before, and I'll say it again. There are two types of people in this world. There are people who left A Star Is Born singing "Shallow," and there are people who left <laughs> the theater singing "Why Did You Do That to Me." And I know, I know which one of those I am. I am the latter, and I don't apologize for it. Is it possible for a band to be both underrated and overrated? Here's what I what I'm going at. It's definitely super impressive that they've been making music and touring for, I mean, in September, they're gonna do a concert in Boston, 50th anniversary, five decades. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. If I look at that way, it's like, um, oh, they might be underrated, you know? Like how many bands, like five decades? That's insane. But I feel like then I go into this category of like, 
I don't know, bands like the level of Queen, The Who, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, ACDC. And I don't know if there's like, if they're hot, Aerosmith high reaches those kind of highs. Like, like I feel like they don't have a Back in Black or a Dark Side of the Moon or Pet Sounds. Maybe, but a lot of those other bands didn't have the luxury of True. continuing on past their initial or whenever they reached their peak. Who knows if they had been able to do 50 years if they would have hit a low, kind of like Aerosmith hit a low. Maybe this was their peak, though, for Aerosmith. The interesting part when I when you do this kind of research and you take a step back is it's kind of poetic that their hit, their only number one hit came from a movie song because apparently it was MTV that really revitalized Aerosmith, the music yeah. videos, uh, the Walk This Way collaboration and then the music video for that. And then you mentioned in the 90s, that trilogy of music videos, mm -hmm. those got a lot of NTB plays. Also, Janie's Got a Gun. Yeah. David Fincher music video. They embraced that era and not only embraced, like excelled. And I also think that they do deserve credit for adapting to the times. I know right. that music videos, at least in 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 rock and, and also rap, are major like cultural moments. And, but I think... I think that Aerosmith adapted to it, it being a band from the 70s in a way that other bands didn't really do it or they didn't have a chance to do it because they'd already fizzled out. I do want to answer your question if they're cool or not. Okay. Yes. Yes. There is a moment to me where Aerosmith is absolutely cool. It's oh, way. I know exactly what you're going to say. What, you gonna, what am I going to say? Let's you're going to say Wayne's Doubtfire. World 2. Yes, Wayne's yeah. World 2. It's one of the coolest rock music scenes that I, one of my favorites, obviously for the people who haven't seen Wayne's World 2, the whole premise of it is Wayne has to put on this like Woodstock kind of, it's called Wayne Stock Show mm -hmm. Festival. And he does it because he has this premonition of if you build it, they will come. If you book them, the bands will show up. And here oh, we are. Oh, this is like very fire festival. <laughs> oh, I guess so. I guess, I guess Wayne's Dog was yeah. the first fire festival, except, except it worked, except it worked because at the end of the climax, like the people are there, like the bands haven't shown up and lo and behold, Aerosmith shows up. They get out of Wayne's car, the blue, like beetle car. I don't know mm -hmm. what the car is, but it's like in a limo and they just look like the coolest rock band in the world. The movie ends with them yeah. performing one of my favorite Aerosmith song, which is shut up and dance. Mm. Okay, I'm I'm glad that you think that that is a cool moment. Because I have another one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> was the other one going to be them appearing on a Wayne's World sketch on SNL? Yes, Sophie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they did that too. Mark, do you remember that sketch? Vaguely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here, I'm going to play. Uh, so also, one of my favorite things about this sketch, it might not be Aerosmith. It's the fact that Tom Hanks is there. I forgot that playing element. the roadie. And he yeah. only says a couple of things and yeah. then just hands, hangs out in the background. <laughs> and he's just like, he really is committed here. And all, all he does, his whole thing is when he does mic check and he does it like with the siblings, siblings here. Mm -hmm. check, 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 one, siblings, one. siblings. Check, 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 two, siblings. I love it. He's so committed to that, yeah. that joke, which is, that's, that's why it worked. Cause he's like so committed, but also like just stays in the background. Yeah. This is, this is a cool moment. It's still a cool moment.
on the drums, that's Dana Carvey playing. Oh, good and for if, Dana. And if you watch the, the video of their performance, the uh, Aerosmith, the rest of the band, not Steven Tyler, or he's singing, but the rest of the band is looking at Dana Carvey and be like, dude, you're like rocking <laughs> on the drums. They're like super impressed <laughs> with his drumming skills. I'm glad that you thought that that was a cool moment because whenever a band that is, you know, like, rock and roll, drugs, sex, blah. Like whenever they do something a little bit more tame, maybe like a Wayne's World sketch or or appearing in the movie or the roller coaster at Disney World, (laughs) it's a little bit like, oh, we're going family friendly, I guess. I don't know. Sometimes I'm conflicted on whether Aerosmith is like the pinnacle of cool or not. But I mean, Steven Tyler's style the scars I mean, five decades you're gonna have some moments that you know no no film director no musicians like it's hard to have an immaculate rap sheet yeah. you know like oh I, I didn't have anything i think we need to move on answerable question let's start seven seconds in heaven what seven seconds from the song gives you goosebumps mark what do you got that first real explosion of, of Steve Tyler's voice. And it just, it's that first scream mm. and uh, it, it just gets me yeah, every let's time. Listen, and- let's listen to it. Yeah, it was the bridge, the biggest uh, one. That's, so the, that's the build up. Hard to argue with that. So what do you got? I, I almost picked that myself, actually. Although I, I did go for a little bit more subtlety this time. And actually, Paolo, you already played it, my clip, in uh, your song descriptions. So uh, here's mine. Well, that's the first verse to... Yeah, correct. So that's about a minute into the song when it, in that moment, like leading up to that first chorus, it really becomes clear what this song is going to be because we had, as Paolo explained, the the instrumentation the or the orchestration and then also we're we're getting right into the rock i think at this point like this is when we get the first hint that this is going to be a badass rock song you guys pick both two solid moments i'm just gonna stick with my dream How could I say no to that? Favorite lyrics. Dream on. As <laughs> yeah, would yeah. Say. Favorite lyrics. What are our favorite lyrics? Uh, Mark, what do you got? This is not from a, a creepy angle, but the <laughs> watch you smile while you are sleeping. Aww. And I think for those who, you know, are fortunate to have been in love and, and you kind of catch that person, you know, smiling in their sleep or, or again, I'll bring it back to you see your little kid. Uh, they've got a little, they crack a little smile while, while they're sleeping. That just kind of gets you right in the feels. Yeah. So favorite lyric? I, I kind of had to choose a big section because I, and maybe part of it is the, the delivery. The size of Texas. The size of Texas. <laughs> Again with that joke the second time. Because <laughs> even when I dream of you, dream. <laughs> that the sweetest dream would never do. I'd still miss you, babe. And I don't want to miss a thing. It's illustrating how much. He loves whoever he's singing to instead of just saying, hey, I love you. I don't have one. I don't really? have favorite lyrics. <laughs> I think while well, I recognize the craft in the lyrics, I don't know. It's just like a little bit too simplistic. Simplistic. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't have that connection. So I, I didn't yeah. get one. I was like, like the movie, I'm not going to focus on the dialogue. I'm going <laughs> to focus on other stuff. On the f- emotion. Yes. <laughs> I see what you mean. It, looking at it on the page, uh, it's definitely cheesy. 
which I think is sort of why it's such a big feat that Aerosmith made this such a badass and kind of sincere song, because it really is mm-hmm. pure cheese. It really is. Yeah. Um, has it aged well? We asked ourselves if the movie and song has aged well. Mark, what do you think? I think it's aged incredibly well. I think it's gone beyond the connection to the movie. Yeah. You, know, you hear this as first dance or, or like songs with like father daughter or first dance songs and weddings. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's timeless and it will uh, continue on. And I would argue more so than some of the episodes you've already posted and people say like, yeah, it's timeless. I'm like, ah, oh, no, this is super dated and, and doesn't hold <laughs> up. But I think this one, I think this trumps a lot of those. I agree. This song, it's aged wonderfully. And I wish I could sort of understand why, besides the fact that it's just so good, because it is a very 90s style of, you know, power ballad for a disaster movie, (laughs) uh, which was absolutely a trend. And then it's Aerosmith with that 70s sound and the big vocals, which wasn't really the, the trend at the time and isn't now. So I, I don't know why this song works, but it absolutely has a timeless quality about it. I, th- I would say it depends. If I look at it in the context of this song has been covered to death, so many covers, it's still considered a great movie song. It's, it's place in movie song history and how it, well it's done and all that stuff. Yes. But when I think about like a cool factor, <laughs> like not really, like you mentioned wedding song, Mario, and I feel like, yeah, like, is that a good thing to become, like, a wedding song? Like, I don't know. It's just... But it's a wedding song played, for cool people. What? 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 No, no. I, look, first off, I, I just... Nothing cool comes of wedding culture. I don't like wedding culture. Oh, stop. I don't like... I don't... We can't all be dead cool. inside, buddy. Yeah. I just don't think... The only cool thing about weddings is drunken uh, speeches. That's the only <laughs> thing. But if I'm a rock star and I have a song, I don't want it to be a wedding song. I, I don't know. But if well, I want to get paid... They but, don't love this song anyway, so yeah, maybe that's... I don't know. Yeah, they don't care. Uh, underrated or overrated? Mark, do we think this song is underrated or overrated? I think it, it balances a little bit between appropriately rated and underrated. I think people, once they revisit it, I think they sort of reappreciate how good it is. Soph? Absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that it might be kind of easy to write off for some of the things that we've mentioned before. It's a little bit cheesy. But then when you actually take the time to listen to it in full, I think you really appreciate how good it is, especially because... We were listening to some covers just to sort of see what people have done with this movie. And wow, they're lame. They're, they're <laughs> not good. Like yeah. Only this version of the song works. And I think that that is really something to say about it. I, I go with neither. I think it's properly rated. Um, it's just, yeah, it's considered a great movie song. Mm-hmm. It is. Hall of Fame moment. Who or what had their best moment in pop culture? This is a fun one. It can be a person, a studio, anything um, about the song or the movie I'm gonna throw some and I see what you guys want to say but I think the Tyler family this is absolutely Hall of Fame moment for them mm. like what a, what a power move yeah daughter starring in the movie the father hit song everyone was like everyone's the happy the Tyler family like they're they are ruling the blockbuster absolutely yeah do you guys have some Absolutely. So I think um, this wins for, and and we've already discussed it, but this wins for best audio commentary moment with (laughs) 
Uh, I think this is a standout. And the fact, frankly, that this is a, a Criterion Collection film, you know, there's a lot of debate as to the merit <laughs> of that. And the fact that it did receive that uh, is open to some interesting discussion. Well, I have one for both of you. Is this like Hall of Fame for stupidity in action movies? No, no, this is a, oh, a no. great movie. <laughs> I think almost every other Michael Bay movie could be. No, but this is, if, if you're talking, if you're only focusing on Michael Bay, this is the more stupid one, I should say. Is it, is it more absurd than Independence Day? Well, those are the other contenders. There's Independence Day, there's Con Air, Face Off, Batman and Robin, Deep Blue Sea, Speed 2 Cruise Control. Also, and I, I'm gonna it, throw- operates, it, <laughs> it operates in a very specific kind of wavelength. And, uh, you know. Um, there's so many, like Demolition Man also. God, I love some stupidity in my action movie. That's why we love yeah. them. But I don't know. I feel like Armageddon asteroid hits Earth. We're going to go fly there and blow it up. Comes up a lot in that context, so I don't know. Uh, NASA, for sure. This is the coolest. Apollo thing for NASA? Or is it Apollo 13? Oh, Apollo 13. Apollo 13, all right. And Harris himself <laughs> says this is their finest hour. Hall of Fame moment for animal crackers. <laughs> mm. yes, they, yes. they they became sexy. <laughs> is it a cracker, though? Or is it a cookie? Yeah. Animal crackers as an aphrodisiac. Yeah, or is it foreplay? <laughs> Remix with today's current artist or band, who will be your choice for this song if it came out today? Mark, do you have one? I'm going to say Coldplay for, for a couple of reasons. Huh. So so one, uh, I think they, you know, they've played well in films. They work with movies. They work with studios. It kind of works with some other you know projects that they have been associated with. I, I think Chris Martin and his voice, I think he can really hit that sort of power ballad and, and kind of emotional yeah they uh, have some part, successful part. ballads on their they they do yeah. and, and i think they play well with sort of a orchestral sound sometimes as well and, and i think that could balance really well uh and i think you know i could see uh, if armageddon is is remade you know maybe their daughter apple becomes an huh. actress because wow, they have that, that parental there's that parental linkage, you know, with with Gwyneth Paltrow. I could I could see her going into acting, and mm-hmm. then you you know you got Chris Martin on vocals singing that love song. So I think that uh, could work. Uh, additionally, I'm I'm going to give one other like quick potential and do kind of a a, a swap. And I think Florence and the Machine mm-hmm. could oh, be an interesting that's a choice. Good one. And I think because. Uh, especially in the vocals, she has so much power uh, and gravitas that I think really can do well with this song. And sometimes they play with some sort of, you know, avant-garde sounds that 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 sounds a little bit different and and works well in a cinematic kind of context. So I think that would be an interesting choice. Yeah, I love Florence has come up in a lot of remixes because I just think their music oh, really? is so it's so cinematic. No, yeah, we've yeah, it's, just, it's, it's just my really, fault. I mentioned her on no, but they, they, they just <laughs> fit really well in this movie genre. And also, maybe we just want to see it. We haven't. I, I'm not super familiar with We're their ready. catalog, but mm-hmm. have they have a movie song. We need it. We need a Florence and the Machine movie song if mm-hmm. we haven't. So, what do you got? This question is supposed to be an answerable question. And yet, (laughs) I (laughs) think I spent the most time thinking about this, like in preparation for the entire podcast. I really, really thought about this one because, like I said earlier, covers of this song are lame. They are not Mm. good to listen to. They're not 
fun. I am very sorry to all the very talented people who have tried to perform this song. You didn't do a good job. So (laughs) Uh, I'm joking, but okay. So here's the thing. If you try to sing it like Steven Tyler, no, you can't. He did it better. But if you want to do something else with it, especially like a stripped down version, it's kind it, it it's not fun. So so like I'm I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like <laughs> I, I'm I'm stuck between an asteroid the size of Texas and a bomb on the asteroid the size of Texas. So okay, so I actually found a band called um well they're new to me at least. They're called Goodbye June. Uh, I thought that the vocalist might be able to take a crack at the Steven Tyler vocals um, if you want to keep it in the rock space. But then I actually got started thinking about like the Walk This Way cover. And I thought, well, what if we blend rock and rap again and we give it to another rap group? So then I thought of uh, Run the Jewels. Like, what would they do with this? I think it could be pretty cool. F yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I don't know. I love their stuff. Yeah. So I was I was just inspired by by Run DMC. Again, it, it wouldn't be so much of a, a remix. It would definitely as make a it cover, cool. Oh my but, god, their yeah. their use of their song in the Black Panther trailer is still one of my favorites. Yeah, like it's needle awesome. drops. They're great. This is what I tap for my answer. I thought, well, this was a song that was intended for a female vocalist, a la Celine Dion. Uh-huh. But then Aerosmith came and did something different. Then I kind of did the same thing. I want my artist to come in and do something different with this song. So with that in mind, I went with Lizzo. Huh. I think she can make a version of this song. Like I would just want to see what she makes. I think she's, I love her music. I love her compositions. I think she can make some really cool stuff. Like the lyrics could match with her, but she could make them cool. I think she can bring an edge to this song that it doesn't end up like a sappy wedding song. <laughs> And uh, she'd have to put a flute solo in oh there. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> on top of the Aster, like on top of that armadillo truck, do that flute solo. Yeah. WTF. Whoa, we have a lot. A moment from the movie or song that made you think might have needed a second opinion. I'm going to start with Mark. Do you have any? While flawless, I could admit, you know, there's there's some issues. Uh, one just quick leap in logic. Uh, what doesn't make sense is AJ gets fired from the oil rig 18 hours later. He has a, his own company yeah. and a new rig. And, you know, how does somebody set up a company? Well, it doesn't look that well thing? if you look at it. It looks mm-hmm. like a junk, a junk place. Like a junkyard. Yeah, 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 a junkyard. Like, it doesn't look like it's going well. I'm just like... So, so that's going to be my main critique of the movie. But the, in terms of the WTF moment, I would say I, the animal crackers. <laughs> yeah. Extremely awkward that you've got this scene with animal crackers going down some pants while her dad is singing this ballad. Uh, it, yes, it's I just awkward see. and weird. <laughs> and uh, most of that scene, I, I get what they're trying to do, but it's, it's just a little, a little cringy and awkward. I think... The camera's treatment of Liv Tyler in this movie. Again, this is huh. also related to the uh, mm-hmm. the Animal Crackers moment. I feel like we're getting a hint at maybe some Megan Fox style treatment from Michael Bay. Like to come, the camera is a little bit too adoring of her, lingers a little too long. And there were parts of it where it just felt a little uncomfy. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't. Yeah. I just made like a, a horrible connection, but in terms of female presence in this movie, 
there's like five minutes of women in this movie and the rest is a bunch of dudes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is like a testosterone movie. It's <laughs> I know I'm again, I'm kind of embarrassed to just like make that realization <laughs> like 20 years later. Yeah. To be continued, should we revisit this movie and talk about other signs of soundtracks? I'm just going to throw out there, no. The, the, the rest of the soundtracks, I thought we mentioned it. Will the song go on? Will the song live on and continue to be a part of pop culture? I'm going to start it off. Uh, yes, I think so, of course. You know, as long as there's people with no taste keep getting married, they'll, they'll keep using this song. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> people no, that have souls That was just a joke. I'm not pleased. People, yeah. <laughs> if people click on this pod and they're like, oh, I love this song. I used in my wedding and hear me. They'll, oh my God, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I, I what do you guys think, think? It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great song. It's timeless. It'll, it'll be around much longer than, than us. Yeah. Oh. And I mean, even a testament to that is, I was very familiar with this song and I really loved it before I had seen the movie and yeah. the movie didn't ruin how I feel about the song. So it must be pretty good. <laughs> All right. YouTube comments. Time for you to come and selfie. As always, we search the bottom of the barrel of YouTube comments. See what we can find. What do you find? What do you have for us? All right, these are coming from YouTube. Gotta respect that Steven Tyler told the band in the 80s that they were going to prove to the world a rock band could be good without drugs. Everybody cleaned up and then they thrived with this song being their first number one with All Sober and the only number one hit single they had. Not many bands are still around from the 70s and still touring. Kudos to the Boston Boys. Did I write this? I feel like I said that exact <laughs> <laughs> opinion earlier. Signed, yeah. Sophie and... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, 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 I do think that's a cool thing, too. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, there have been some relapses since then, but you, you, their commitment to recovery is really respectable. And, you know, it's a great testament that they can rock hard sober. Here's another one. Steven Tyler is, in my opinion, the best male vocalist. His ranges <laughs> are crazy and no male singers in a long time can match him. Each song he sang, you could feel his story. He is my king. I want to see what you guys think, because I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know how I feel about Steven Tyler's. I mean, it, it obviously is unique and I like it. I, I definitely wouldn't go where that comment goes, like among the best. But I can also see a lot of people thinking that. So I'm curious what you both think. Like, how where, where do you put Steven Tyler in terms of like rock male voices? Certainly up there. Um, is it the best? Probably, probably not. But but. You know, a, a very I mean, uh, dream on performance. His performance, dream on, is I like, love dream on, like yeah, legendary. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing, and I guess this is maybe linked to like why I have conflicting opinions on whether Aerosmith is cool or not, because I feel like Steven Tyler isn't isn't always in that category of best rock vocals. However, like like he should be, he should be getting that credit. So I, I don't agree know. I play that Academy Awards clip, and it's like. We played Alanis Morissette performing on the Oscars, and that wow. sounded like, oh my god! Well, that's then, another person who should be included in best rock vocals. And then and I play, isn't. and then I saw that performance, and like, man, like this is the the the, the Oscars. Like, you didn't you don't bring it? <laughs> like, you don't bring it, or, or or is that is that what you got? What well, is it? Come on, right. Tyler. <laughs> all right. Might have been the drugs. Maybe. Last year, I went to a wedding, and the groom dedicated this song to the bride. They will definitely be happy. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. That's that's how we know it's true love. They will definitely be happy. They said it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, okay, here's a sweet one. This is the best daddy daughter song of all time in my life. 
If I have a daughter, I will sing it to her or at least try to. Kudos to that dad for trying to attempt some Steven Tyler vocals to their daughter. Yeah, I, I think that <laughs> might scare your daughter. Yeah. Like, I, even if you nail the Steven Tyler vocals, like, I don't think that's a good thing to do. Uh, no, but I, I think that is sweet. I mean, in the context of the movie, a little bit complicated, as we've discussed, but, sure. but I think that's a great dad-daughter song. Here's another one. You folks do know this song was written for and about his daughter, right? I know it can translate differently for many people, but this was a song about a father's love for his daughter. Oh, I love it when people try to be a smart ass and they're like completely wrong. Yeah, ask Diane like, Warren. You folks don't know shit and I know everything and I'm so wrong. You're very wrong. God, true internet fashion. And we need to give Diane Did Warren all the credit. <laughs> you should answer her comment back with a link to this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> okay, last one. Beautiful song. Don't know what all the screaming is about. <laughs> the song, are you? Are these really Because YouTube an asteroid comments? is coming to destroy the Earth. An asteroid the size of Texas. Yeah. Are these YouTube comments? Are these your comments? I love the screaming in the song. The screaming in the movie is up for it. debate. Well, no more screaming. That's a wrap. Or I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith. Mark. Thank you so much for coming on this journey. Look, we all survived. None of us had to stay behind. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much for picking this one. This is a this yeah. This was really fun. Well, don't no, th thank you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, you know, like Bruce Willis saying goodbye via a message. You know, it's it's a promise that uh, I can't keep. That, but I I will have to part ways today. It was a lot of fun sitting with you guys, and I could go on. If you had more time, I honestly could talk for the next hour as to why didn't Pearl Harbor succeed to the same level. So, you know, if you ever want to do like a little side cast, I would be happy to jump on uh, a Pearl Harbor chat. There is a lot more like stupid blockbuster movie songs to cover. So if if you want to own that <laughs> that territory. Yeah. Uh, also, as we've discussed, <laughs> Diane Warren did the song with Faith Hill for Pearl Harbor. So yeah. maybe we'll have to have you back for that one. I, I like how you uh, how you grouped me into just like soulless <laughs> films without uh, any uh, what's that what's the word I'm thinking of? can't think of it now but uh, uh merit <laughs> soul <laughs> soul yeah but uh, I'll happily take on that title anytime you want a crappy movie to discuss I'll be right there to defend alright well thanks okay. a lot Mark and again check us out on Instagram Twitter at the song will go on Sophie thank you so much for your work on this episode and yeah, thank, you for, thank you everyone for listening. Catch you on the next song. Bye. The Song Will Go On is written, researched, and produced by Sophie Matano and Paolo Garcia. Theme music is composed by William Russell. Consulting producers are JP Lee and Jonathan Fisher. Recording, editing, and mixing by Sophie Matano and Paolo Grassini. The Song Will Go On is a Gigawatts podcast. You can find Gigawatts on YouTube and on Instagram at gigawatts underscore YouTube. 